Section four of Gafantia by Charles Francois Tipshania de la Roche. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fifteen The Female Reasoner. I saw two women apart, one of which was talking. She looked around her every moment with that air of uneasiness which expresses a confidence the most mysterious. I lent my ear and with great difficulty I heard what follows. I am obliged to thee, my dear Countess, for the idea thou hast conceived of my prudence. Hearken, I will hide nothing from thee. Thou shalt see how far I may be relied on. We women are forced to guess things. They will never be told us plainly. But, with a little attention, it is easy for us to see how matters are. For my part, I have reflected on the maxims of the wise men of our days, and from thence have drawn these conclusions. It is only the mob that trouble themselves now about a future state. The rewards and punishments of another world are words without a meaning, which have long been discarded by people of fashion. Beasts and men, of beasts the chief, are made to be guided by the senses. They should be actuated solely by the passions. Let each attentively listen to what is inspired into him by nature, and let him follow her inspirations. That is the way to happiness. On the other hand, society cannot subsist without laws, and laws cannot be accommodated to the passions of every citizen. They therefore who have placed their happiness in what is forbidden by law cannot behave too circumspectly. They must always walk in the shade, Mystery should follow their steps, and cast a veil on all their proceedings. In a word, they may do what they will, provided they appear to do what they ought. These, my dear Countess, are the maxims I have gathered from the philosophy of the time. I will not mention their influence on my conduct. Perhaps I really am what I appear to be, but I should be quite otherwise, that I might appear always such." O oh, Babylon, said I to myself, the leaven has fermented the whole mass. Thou appearest very corrupt, but thou art still more corrupt than thou appearest. Chapter 16 The Crocodiles During the course of my travels, I saw in Persia, on the plains watered by the Tedjan, a dispute arise which divided the country and bred a surprisingly aminosity in the people. I was curious to see how that matter stood. I placed the mirror in the proper position, and then put the end of the rod upon the globe, so as I could see and hear what was doing. The plain was covered with two numerous armies, which were just going to join battle. The ground of the quarrel was this. A pious and learned Mussulman, who used to read the Alcoran with the zeal of an archangel and the penetration of a seraphim, took it in his head one day to ask whether the dove that instructed Mohammed spoke Hebrew or Arabic. Some said one thing, some another, and two parties were formed. They disputed, they rode at large pro and con, and could not agree. To the warmth of the contest were added bitterness, malignity, its inseparable companion, and policy, which endeavors to make an advantage of everything. One party persecuted the other, or was persecuted, according as they were or were not uppermost. 
they began with the forfeiture of estates and banishments and ended in an open war the secretaries had caballed so well that the people rose in arms against one another the two armies were just going to engage when a venerable old man advanced and convening the heads made the following speech hearken o ye people of khorasan there was in egypt a famous city called ombi it was near another great city named tentris both were situated on the fertile banks of the nile in that part the river bred a great number of crocodiles and these voracious animals so fiercely attacked these two cities that the inhabitants were going to remove the governors of tentris were apprehensive that their authority would vanish and the citizens would become dispersed they assembled therefore the tentorites and said you suffer the destructive animals to increase and multiply in peace hear what we have to declare to you in the name of the nile your foster-father and your god woe be unto you if you remain any longer in this state of indolence arm without delay and wage war against the monsters that devour your wives and children it was the injunction of the nile and not to be disputed the tenderites took up arms but it was with great disadvantage and never was advice more imprudent the crocodiles invulnerable in almost all the parts of their bodies killed many more men than the men killed monsters the governors of ombi used a different artifice to keep the ombites from leaving their city hearken said they to them the god nile speaks to you by our mouth i create plenty among the ombites i enrich their lands i fatten their flocks my waters flow and they grow rich the crocodile is my servant and i permit him now and then to feed upon some of them this is the only tribute i require for all my benefits and instead of rejoicing at having it in their power by a single act to render themselves agreeable to me they destroy one another if my servant seizes a few children let them cease to complain or i will cease to feed them i will withhold my waters and all shall perish the moment the ombites knew the crocodile to be the favorite of the nile they erected altars to him and far from complaining when he was pleased to feed on their children they gloried in it is there a woman more happy than i said an ombite i enjoy a competent fortune have a loving husband and three of my children have been eaten by the servant of our god nile in the meantime the favorite of the nile was killed by the tenterites and worshipped by the ombites discord and animosity inflamed them against one another and they went to war which ended in the destruction of both thus perished two cities dupes of their sincerity devoured by the crocodile and butchered by each other let this example open your eyes o yet unfortunate inhabitants of this happy climate cease to be victims of an irregular zeal worship god keep silence and live in peace scarce had the old man done speaking when a general murmur and menacing look showed him how little he had moved the assembly so he withdrew with a sigh immediately the battle was joined and i turned away my eyes that i might not behold these mad people destroy one another i have a great deal more to show you says the prefect let us lay down the mirror and rod and walk on chapter seventeen the storm 
Some paces from the noisy globe the earth is hollowed, and there appears a descent of forty or fifty steps of turf, at the foot of which there is a beaten subterraneous path. We went in, and my guide, after leading me through several dark turnings, brought me at last to the light again. He conducted me into a hall of middling size, and not much adorned, where I was struck with a sight that raised my astonishment. I saw, out of a window, a sea which seemed to me to be about a quarter of a mile distant. The air, full of clouds, transmitted only that pale light which forebodes a storm. The raging sea ran mountains high, and the shore was whitened with the foam of the billows which broke on the beach. By what miracle, said I to myself, has the air, serene a moment ago, been so suddenly obscured? By what miracle do I see the ocean in the center of Africa? Upon saying these words, I hastily ran to convince my eyes of so improbable a thing. But in trying to put my head out of the window, I knocked it against something that felt like a wall. Stunned with the blow, and still more with so many mysteries, I drew back a few paces. Thy hurry, said the prefect, occasions thy mistake. That window, that vast horizon, those thick clouds, that raging sea, are all but a picture. From one astonishment I fell into another. I drew near with fresh haste, my eyes were still deceived, and my hand could hardly convince me that a picture should have caused such an illusion. The elementary spirits, continued the prefect, are not so able painters as naturalists. Thou shalt judge by their way of working. Thou knowest that the rays of light, reflected from different bodies, make a picture and paint the bodies upon all polished surfaces, on the retina of the eye, for instance, on water, on glass. The elementary spirits have studied to fix these transient images. They have composed a most subtle matter, very viscous and proper to harden and dry, by the help of which a picture is made in the twinkle of an eye. They do over with this matter a piece of canvas, and hold it before the objects they have a mind to paint. The first effect of the canvas is that of a mirror. There are seen upon it all the bodies far and near, whose image the light can transmit. But what the glass cannot do, the canvas, by means of the viscous matter, retains the images. The mirror shows the objects exactly, but keeps none. Our canvas shows them with the same exactness, and retains them all. This impression of the images is made the first instant they are received on the canvas, which is immediately carried away into some dark place. An hour after, the subtle matter dries, and you have a picture so much more the valuable, as it cannot be imitated by art nor damaged by time. We take, in their purest source, the luminous bodies, the colors which painters extract from different materials, and which time never fails to alter. The justness of the design, the truth of the expression, the gradation of the shades, the stronger or weaker strokes, the rules of perspective, all these we leave to nature, who, with a sure and never-ending hand, draws upon our canvases images which deceive the eye, and make reason to doubt whether what are called real objects are not phantoms which impose upon the sight, the hearing, the feeling, 
and all senses at once. The prefect then entered into some physical discussions. First, on the nature of the glutinous substance which intercepted and retained the rays. Secondly, upon the difficulties of preparing and using it. Thirdly, upon the struggle between the rays of light and the dried substance. Three problems which I propose to the naturalists of our days, and leave to their sagacity. Meanwhile, I could not take my eyes from the picture. A sensible spectator, who from the shore beholds a temptuous sea, feels not more lively impressions. Such images are equivalent to the things themselves. The prefect interrupted my ecstasy. I keep you too long, says he, upon this storm, which by the elementary spirits designed to represent allegorically the troublesome state of this world, and mankind's stormy passage through the same. Turn thy eyes, and behold what will feed thy curiosity and increase thy admiration. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE GALLERY, OR THE FORTUNE OF MANKIND Scarce had the prefect said these words, when a folding door opened on our right, and led us into an immense gallery, where my wonder was turned into amazement. On each side, above two hundred windows let in the light to such a degree, that the eye could hardly bear a splendor. The spaces between them were painted with that art I have just been describing. Out of each window was some part of the territory of the elementary spirits. In each picture appeared woods, fields, seas, nations, armies, whole regions, and all these objects were painted with such truth that I was often forced to recollect myself that I ought not fall into illusion. I could not tell, every moment, whether what I was viewing out of the window was not a painting, or what I was looking at in a picture was not a reality. Survey with thy eyes, said the prefect, survey the most remarkable events that have shaken the earth and decided the fate of men. Alas, what remains of all these powerful springs, of all these great exploits? The most real signs of them are the traces they have left upon our canvases in the forming these pictures. The most ancient actions, whose luster has preserved their memory, are the actions of violence. Nimrod, the mighty hunter, after having worried the wild beasts, attacks his fellow creatures. See in the first picture that gigantic man, the first of those heroes so renowned. See in his looks pride, ambition, and ardent desire of rule. He framed the first scheme of a kingdom, and uniting men under the pretense of binding them together, he enslaved them. Belus, Ninus, Semiramis ascended the throne, which they strengthened by fresh acts of violence. And of above thirty kings who were successively reigned, only one closed the wounds of mankind. Let Asia take a breath, and governed like a philosopher, his name is almost forgot. History, which glows at the sight of renowned and tragical events, languishes over peaceable reigns, and scarce mentions such sovereigns. Sardana Palace ends this series of kings. Enemy to noise, disorder, and war, he misspends his time, shuts himself up in his palace, and sinks into effeminacy. The women thou seest about him, neither think nor exist but for him. 
His looks give them life, and he receives life from theirs. What do I say? He seeks himself with astonishment and finds himself not. A surfeit of pleasures destroys his taste. He does not live, but languish. In the meantime, two of his generals, loathing peace, form schemes of conquest and feed themselves with bloody projects. They deem themselves alone worthy to reign, because they alone breathe war in the midst of the public tranquility. See where they attack and dethrone their effeminate monarch, and forcing him to destroy himself, they seize and share his dominions. Thus the Assyrian Empire was dismembered, after having kept Asia in continual alarms above twelve hundred years. King succeeded both at Nineveh and at Babylon, and all became famous for wars and ravages. One of them laid Egypt waste, plundered Palestine, burnt Jerusalem, put out the eyes of a king whose children he had murdered, drove from their country whole nations and put them in chains, and after such expeditions he ordered altars to be erected to him, and worship to be paid to him as a beneficent god. See at the foot of his image, incense burning and nations lying prostrate, and admire how far the pride and abjection of mortals extend. The next picture represents the infancy of Cyrus, and the particular moment wherein he gave signs of that intolerable haughtiness, considered by the historians as the first sallies of a greatness of soul, which to display itself wants only great occasions. Cyrus, both by right of birth and right of conquest, united Assyria and Medea to Persia, and was the founder of the largest empire that ever existed. His successors still think their bounds too narrow. They sent into Greece, which was then signalized in Europe, armies infinitely numerous, the which are destroyed, and the spirit of conquest had on that occasion the fate which unhappily it has not always. The Greeks, freed from these powerful enemies, turned their arms against one another. They are animated by jealousy, inflamed by the warm and dangerous eloquence of their orators, and torn by civil wars. Persia falls into the same convulsions. And when perhaps everything was tending to peace, Alexander appears, and all are embroiled worse than ever. This picture shows him in that tender age wherein he lamented his father's conquests, and saw with grief human bloodshed by wounds he had not made. Scarce was he on the throne when he carried desolation into Greece, Persia, and India. The world did not suffice for his murdering progress, and his heart was still unsatisfied. That other picture represents his death, that destructive thunderbolt is at last extinguished. Alexander expires, and casting his dying eyes on the grand monarchy he is going to leave, nothing seems to comfort him but the prospect of the bloody tragedies of which his death is to be the signal. All of Alexander's dominions, those to whom they belonged of right, had the least share. The empire was divided among his generals. War was soon kindled amongst them, continued among their descendants, and ruined all the countries of which they had the rule. Among so many warlike kings, Ptolemy Philadelphus appeared like a lily raised by chance in a field of thorns. See in that immense library, 
the monarch surrounded with old sages who are giving him an account of the numberless volumes which are before his eyes he was too great a lover of mankind to disturb their tranquillity and held them in such estimation that he collected from all countries the productions of their wit these kinds of riches seemed to him alone worthy of his care he saw them with the same eye that other kings behold those metals which they search for in the bowels of the earth or which they fetch from the extremities of the world through rivulets of blood whilst discord rages amongst alexander's successors and their descendants already appeared in the centre of italy the first sparks of the flame that was to spread over the universe and consume all nations like those bodies of vast weight which not being in their just position swing themselves to and fro for some moments and then fix themselves immovably rome subject successively to kings consuls decemvirs military tribunes settles a government and begins the conquest of the world this ambitious nation direct at first their forces against their neighbors in vain did the several italian states struggle for five hundred years against the fate of rome one while in subjection another while in rebellion now conquerors now conquered they were all in the end forced to submit to the yoke italy subdued and calmed that is reduced to the state of those robust bodies which by being exhausted fall into a consumption and weakness the romans cross the seas and go into africa in search of fresh enemies and other spoils carthage as ambitious perhaps as powerful but more unfortunate than her rival after a long and violent contest is overcome and destroyed corinth and numantia share the same fate about this time variatus raised himself in the same manner as the romans in this picture he is a huntsman in that a robber in the third a general of an army and in the fourth he mounts the throne of lusitania but he was only a victim crowned by fortune to be sacrificed to the ambition of the romans asia is soon open to these insatiable conquerors the empire daily enlarges and that enormous power overruns all the known world the first passion of the romans was glory during seven centuries patriotism which policy cherished with so great success directed the love of glory in favor of the republic and the romans signalized themselves no less by their attachment to their country than by their warlike exploits this space was filled with a long train of heroes and those that followed despairing to become famous in the same manner sought to distinguish themselves by other methods rome was the mistress of the world it appeared glorious to become master of rome Sila, marius and some others showed that such a project was not impracticable caesar accomplished it that boasted conqueror who was reproached with so many things effaced them all by his virtue by his military virtue which destroyed above a million of men oppressed his fellow-citizens and enslaved his country in vain did the republic exert her utmost endeavors to save her expiring liberty she was exhausted and stretched her hands to augustus who from a bad citizen became the best of masters raised to the empire he put an end to war 
and soon gave mankind a peace the most universal they had ever enjoyed the elementary spirits have given an idea of the pleasure of this general tranquillity by the agreeable prospect of the landscapes which are here represented this peace pray says i interrupting the prefect suspend a moment the rapid recital of so many revolutions give me leave to examine this picture and a little time to calm the perturbation of my mind how i love to see that beautiful sky those plains that lose themselves at a distance those pastures filled with flocks those fields covered with corn the breath of war blows far from those climates with the vertiginous spirit of heroism this is indeed the seat of peace and tranquillity my imagination carries me to those delightful valleys i behold and contemplate nature whose labors nothing interrupts producing on every side life and pleasure my thoughts are composed and my spirits sedate amidst the tranquillity that reigns in those places my blood grown cool flows in my veins with the same gentle motion as the rivulets that water those green turfs and the passions now have on my mind only the effect of the zephyr which seems to play gently among the branches of leafy trees end of section four